Hey, you are listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Seven Mile Road. We are a gospel-centered church just north of Boston, Mass. To learn more about who we are and what we are going for together, just go to sevenmilemelrose.com. So in this text today, Jesus gives us Old Testament examples of appropriate and inappropriate responses to God, right? He references Jonah, that's an Old Testament example. He references the Queen of the South, that's an Old Testament example. And he's trying to show what these appropriate and inappropriate responses look like and what they mean, what they are coming, where they are coming from. But because Jesus is God's son, he shows the crowd the difference between appropriate and inappropriate responses to God. But because he's God's son, he's actually talking about responses to himself. Does anyone in life give us better examples of inappropriate responses than children? You ask a four-year-old, what do you, you want to be when you grow up, son? A dinosaur! It's not an appropriate response. Hopefully this one isn't just in my house, but you have two siblings playing, everything's going fine. One takes something small and insignificant for the other. What happens? I hate you! You're like, whoa, that was intense, lifelong, sworn hatred towards your sibling, not an appropriate response for a stolen toy. Getting ready to leave for church is always fun. They're doing something that they want to be doing, and you yell down, time to come upstairs and brush your teeth. Anger, demonic growls, stuff slamming, stomping all the way up the stairs. It's not an appropriate response. It's no different for us with God, right? Just like a parent who needs to train their kid in the difference between appropriate and inappropriate responses to love and commands, God does so for us with his word. And it's what we see on full display with Christ today with the crowd. It is going to go even deeper than our external outside responses. Jesus is going to show us where these responses actually come from. And he says that they come from the inside. So this is what we're going to see today. When it comes to Jesus, people respond to Christ in one of two ways. They either worship or they assess who he is and they don't believe and they reject. So this morning is going to be very basic Christian stuff. I'm going to walk through a couple of the verses at a time to get us a feel for what Jesus is teaching us. And I'm going to start at the beginning with verse 29. It says, when the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. So if you come into this, if you come into this place with 2022 20, ears on, and you're a nice person, and you hear Jesus call a, crowd, call a crowd of people evil, that might make you cringe a little bit. If we were running Jesus's PR campaign, we'd say, whoa, Jesus, hey, guy, don't say evil people. No, 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 you can't say that. Say differing opinions, yes. This this generation is one of differing opinions. That would be much softer language, but Jesus often uses hard language with sharp edges, and he does so with a, for a reason. He isn't a jerk about it, but he often does cut straight to the chase. So if you're not used to Jesus' words, some of these can be sharp. So in this case, he says that they're evil because they're seeking a sign. So he links those two things together. Their sign-seeking is what he's saying is where the evil is coming from. 
They want to see Jesus do something crazy. Jesus, part the clouds, show us angels, show us you're the Son of God, do something wild. If I said right now that I could do a triple backflip and land back on my feet, would you believe me? What if I insisted? What would you say? You'd say, do it. You'd say, prove it, right? It wouldn't be inappropriate given the look of me, I get it. But what would that say about what I'm saying to you and what you think I'm, and what you believe in me? It would tell you that you don't believe me, right? You don't trust me. You don't believe that what I'm saying is true. If you don't trust the person who's telling you something, you're going to demand that they prove it, that they show you signs. This is the core problem with their sign-seeking. Jesus is giving them God's truth, and they don't trust him. And because they don't trust him, they can't believe him. And because of those two things simultaneously, their mind is already made up, and they're closed off to what he's saying. Now, we saw in the passages that we preached through last week that this was illustrated pretty strongly. Jesus is with the same crowd of people. There's a mute man who isn't speaking, who doesn't speak, who can't speak. And Jesus heals him. And after he heals him, the man starts speaking. It's pretty incredible. If the crowd was actually looking for a sign that Jesus is the Son of God, they just got one. So it's not just that they're missing who Jesus is, and if he would simply give them a clearer sign, they would believe. The issue is that no amount of signs from Jesus will bring them to trust and love him. That's the issue. No amount of external signs will bring a heart that does not trust and love God to worship of Jesus. Think about how trust in human relationships work, okay? I used to clean carpets when I was a younger, younger lad. I had a carpet cleaning machine. I drove around in a van. I saw carpets so gross that if I explained them to you now, it would ruin your Easter meal. When I first started working, I was with an older lady, and every time we went into a house, she asked the person if she could use the bathroom. And I was new, and I'm like, wow, this is, this is weird. She must have some serious bathroom problems wasn't long before she wasn't working for the carpet cleaning company anymore because she was under criminal investigation. What she was doing is she'd go into everybody's house, ask to use the bathroom, and then she'd go in their medicine cabinet looking for all the fancy pills that they needed for pain relief. Not a very uplifting story, I am aware of that. My point is, I now have a very strong distrust for home service workers. It doesn't matter if some straight-A kid on the debate team at St. John's Prep asked me to use my bathroom. I'm saying, nope, I don't trust you. Go outside. There's a tree out back. (laughs) If he says, but I really got to go, you got to believe me. I'm sorry. I don't believe you. I don't trust you. doesn't matter how real the need is. If you don't trust someone, you can't believe them. You can't believe what they're saying is genuine. So it doesn't matter what signs Jesus gives. It actually doesn't even matter if Jesus comes back from the dead. These people are not believing that Jesus is God's son. They don't trust him. Because they don't trust him, they don't believe him. Because they don't believe him, they can't love him. And because they don't love him, they can't worship him. They're stuck in a place where they cannot respond appropriately. So this is why Jesus calls them evil for seeking a sign. Seems like strong language, and it is, but this is where it's coming from. 
They're seeking a sign comes from a heart that is stuck in a really bad place. Now, Jesus does say that there will be a sign. And he says that the sign they're going to get is the sign of Jonah. If you caught that in the text, he said, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of God, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So Jonah, maybe you have some idea of who Jonah was. Maybe you have some idea who Nineveh is. Every time I wrote Ninevite in my text, Word auto-corrected it to the 90s. And some of you are like, oh, but I love the 90s. To get an idea what Jesus is talking about, we need to go to that Old Testament book of Jonah. And I'm going to give just a real quick summary of who it is so that we can orient ourselves to what Jesus is saying. Right, so Jonah is an Old Testament prophet. He's in the times of the kings of Israel. And this is before Israel was completely taken over and held captive by other uh, other nations. God tells Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh and preach repentance. Basically, go to this foreign people and preach gospel to them. Now, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. They are the enemies of God. Assyria was basically a terrorist state. These people were brutal. Anyone who they invaded, they just absolutely decimated, enslaved, and they were a brutal military power in the ancient world. So this is who God is sending Jonah to. And Jonah's like, I don't want to go to my enemies and preach gospel because I know that you're good. And if I do that, you might show them mercy. So Jonah's like understanding that, hey, I worship a merciful God. If I go and I preach judgment and repentance to a wicked nation, they might repent and believe. And who doesn't want to see their enemies get what they deserve? This is what Jonah is thinking through. So Jonah says in his heart, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to get on a boat. I'm going to sail away. I'm going to hide from this mission of God. And a big, fat, huge fish eats him, swallows him whole. For three days, Jonah is dead inside the belly of a fish. And after three days, the three days is important, he comes back from the dead, and he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches just like God told him to do, and what do you think happens? The whole city of Nineveh repents. They turn to God. They respond appropriately. It's a miracle. They turn from trusting in themselves. They turn to trusting in God. Now, what's really interesting about this story in the middle of the Old Testament is that when Jesus' is, when Jesus, Jesus's use of it here with the crowds is an example of an appropriate response. And what's interesting about that is that the Ninevites were known to be the enemies of God, and they were cultural and religious outsiders. They're not inside Israel. They're not supposed to be getting the promises of God. But God's grace extends to them. It is the city of Nineveh that is repenting and turning to God in a time when Israel is going the other way. So that's the book of Jonah. Now what in our text today, or how is Jesus like Jonah And then what is the sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about? That's the question that we ask of the text. The obvious one is that Jesus is going to be the prophet who's dead for three days, not in the belly of a fish, but in the belly of a tomb. And when he comes back from the dead, gospel is going to be preached, and outsiders are going to respond appropriately with worship. 
right? People who did not know God will repent, and people who are not God's people will become God's people. So the sign of Jonah has something to do with the prophet who was dead and comes back from, comes back from the grave. But in this context, it seems a little bit more obvious, at least for the crowd that day, the sign of Jonah is simply the preaching of the gospel in appropriate response of repentance and worship of Jesus. The crowds that have gathered around Jesus aren't responding appropriately, right? Rather than turning from their ways and worshiping God, they're rejecting him. And Jesus is showing them their condemnation by pointing to an Old Testament story where the unbelieving nations repent and Israel does not. Now, to really sink this in, he uses another Old Testament example. It's a little bit more obscure. It's more obscure for us. He says, the queen of the south, right? So the people who he's preaching to would have known this reference. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. I'm not going to go real deep, and it really wouldn't matter if I did, because there's like three sentences in the Bible on who the queen of the south is. You're like, why would Jesus use this reference to a queen of the south? Well, at the time when Solomon was king, before the time of Jonah, it was said that Solomon was the wisest person to have ever lived in all the world. And the fame of his wisdom goes all over the place, and it reaches some lady, some queen, in a foreign land. And so she says, I'm going to go and test to see if this king is as wise as they say. So she travels to Israel to test and see if what she has heard about Solomon is true, and is, is, is his press as wise as he claims he is. She goes to Israel and come to find out, she sees Solomon in his glory, she walks his kingdom, she hears his words, and she confirms it, Solomon is wise. Solomon has the wisdom from God. So why does Jesus say this? It's very similar to why he's using Jonah. It's because it's another story in the crowd's Bible where an outsider, the outcast, the one who doesn't know God, recognizes his wisdom, recognizes his truth, and believes. So think about the contrast in the crowd's response. They're hearing Jesus preach the very words of God like Jonah did, but they aren't responding appropriately like the hearers in Nineveh. They're hearing Jesus in all his wisdom like Solomon, but they can't see it. They aren't responding appropriately like the queen of the south. They are seeking more signs at a time when what they need to do is see the sign of Jesus himself with his truthful preaching and his wisdom from God. But they can't see it. They don't believe. Now Jesus concludes this section with some hard words for the crowd. He says, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He is saying that the sign of God is in front of them. Jesus is greater than Solomon. And even outsiders knew that Solomon was wise. Jesus is greater than Jonah. And even outsiders turned and believed in God at the preaching of Jonah. But God's own people can't see it and can't hear it. So they're not good words for the crowd. He says that the very witnesses against you 
and your unbelief in the end will come from those who had lesser signs and still believed. Now that's almost the end of the interaction with the crowd, but then Jesus goes further and he gives a metaphor. And at first you're like, this kind of seems disconnected. I don't know what he's talking about with the light and the lamp, and it's coming from the inside and your eye is evil, but it's very connected. It sinks this in further and it shows us where these responses are coming from. Jesus says that the eye is the lamp of the body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. So this is going to start to bring us to a close this morning. right? What Jesus is saying here is if you're going to have an appropriate response to God, you need to be made right on the inside. Metaphorically speaking, the light needs to come from the inside. So in my house, I already used the kids' example. You know, I have three crazy ones, and they have small, tiny, sharp, pointed, hard toys all over the place. And it's like these toys are from Toy Story, and they think it's their job to position themselves in the middle of the night in a way that is most harmful to big, bad, mean adults. So what happens when I need to get to the other side of the room to turn on the light, it's like, it's like Satan put them in my way to try to see if a Christian would cuss, and I rock across the house and I, I step on them and I get hurt. When the lights are off, you can't see anything that you're stepping on, you step on bad stuff, you get hurt. Metaphorically, Christianity works in the same way. We know that the physical world gives off light, the sun gives us light, things like that, and it comes from the outside in, right? The sun or a lamp or a light bulb, it provides visibility for our eyes and our eyes capture the data and we understand what we're looking at. But light working from the inside out is how God's world works morally and ethically. The way you interpret and understand and discern and believe or disbelieve These things come from the inside of a person. This is how truth works. On the inside of a person, there needs to be a light from God. And in scripture, light signifies and describes goodness, beauty, purity, health, things like this. But light is also a word that is used to describe Jesus. Light is used to describe the person of Jesus. The Holy Spirit illuminates the light of Christ inside of a person. And that light comes from God. When there, is, when there is Christ's goodness and health and love on the inside, it allows us to see Christ for who he is, respond appropriately, and worship him. So now as we bring this to a close, I want to give us a couple of things to consider from this text, okay? The first is this. How are we like the crowd? In a lot of ways, we come into this into this room in a very similar position as the crowd. Oh, you're the son of God? Prove it. Jesus rose from the dead on Easter and wants me to worship him? Show me the science. Right? If that's you today, it's okay. I love you. But this text in the Bible teaches us that 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 kind of sign demanding from God is never satisfied. Who Jesus is in his preaching, who Jesus is in his life, who Jesus is in his death and resurrection, that needs to be enough to satisfy the demand. It has to be because that's the sign that God has given us. 
and faith doesn't work another way. Now, maybe your, your, maybe your skepticism today is not so demanding. Maybe you're more like, yeah, Jesus, I, I hear that you're saying you're wise and you're the son of God who died and came back from the dead, but because I don't see how that applies to my life right now, and I would need something crazy from you to change my life in a different trajectory to worshiping you. And by the way, I'm pretty happy with my life and the way things are going, and there isn't a whole lot of trust between you and me right now. That's probably the majority of the people that Jesus runs into in his ministry. And it's probably the majority of uh, the people today who say that believe in Jesus. They tend to land there. It's an intellectual ascent that Jesus is the Son of God, but it's not a heart posture of worship. But Jesus demands our worship. Jesus is worthy of our worship. We can't have lasting joy in life without trusting and loving and believing in Jesus and enjoying the worship of him. So if we aren't there and we're not in that place, then what do we do? If we wanted to get there, how do we get there? Jesus said, therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Simple metaphor, when you walk into the house and you turn the light switch on and nothing happens, you know that the power's out. You know that you need to change the light bulbs. The sign, that sign is clear. The sign in us is a little less tangible, but we know what it is and we know when it is happening. The sign for us that there is darkness in us is a, is a lack of joyful worship. The sign of darkness in us is a lack of joyful worship. So we might find that we enjoy a whole bunch of things that God has given us. Maybe a good job, cuddly pets, maybe a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a good vacation, right? But we lack a deep joy and health in knowing that we are right with God. We aren't free in worshiping God because we find that we do not have his love and his light in our life, in our heart, and we can't see who he is. So let's say we're willing to admit it, and we're not saying that we are, but let's say that we're willing to admit that we're full of darkness, and maybe we wouldn't use the word full because that's a little aggressive. Maybe there's some darkness in us, and I'm not worshiping, trusting Jesus. What would I do? It's simple. You ask God to turn the power on. You ask God to change the dead light bulbs. You ask God and you tell him that you can see that your flashlight has no batteries in it, and you could really use the batteries. You can't see, and you want to see. If you would turn this morning and ask God to shine his light on you so that you can see Jesus and respond rightly with worship, God will meet you in that request. And Easter will be for you today what it is supposed to be. Would you pray with me? Father, you've got to shine the light on us so that we can see Jesus in all his glory and all his splendor and all his majesty. In ourselves, we can't do it. We wouldn't want to do it, and we can't, and we need you to do it, and we thank you for sending your son. Today, we worship you on Resurrection Sunday, that the tomb is empty, and if we were to look in there, Jesus wouldn't be there. He's alive. He's at your right hand. He's for us today. We give you the praise and we give you the honor. We give you the glory. And we ask you to give us the joy today. Amen.